Learning to Listen, TV show and podcast series, Conversations for Change. Presented by the Brazelton Touchpoint Center. Hosted by Joshua Sparrow. Dr. Sparrow is a child psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School, the author of nine parenting books, and is the executive director of the Brazelton Touchpoint Center. The center was founded by T. Barry Brazelton, who was one of the most influential doctors in pediatrics and child development of the 20th century. Conversations for Change. Opening your eyes for new voices on parenting. Brought to you by the Burke Foundation. Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams and Santa Clara First Five. Hello, I'm Joshua Sparrow, Executive Director of the Brazelton Touchpoint Center. Thank you so much for joining us for Conversations for Change, Learning to Listen. Today we have the incredible and privilege of welcoming Priscilla Concujoveda and Ishmael Bea to talk with us about their experiences with children in war zones. I wanted to show you Ishmael's fabulous books, Radiance of Tomorrow and A Long Way Gone, in which Ishmael talks about his memories of being a child soldier and the process of recovery. And I'd like to start with you, Priscilla, and have you uh, tell us about your work on behalf of children in war zones around the world. Priscilla Kunkau-Haveda is a human rights lawyer and has worked for the UN for the past 10 years negotiating with warlords for the release of child soldiers from terrorist groups across Africa. Mainly the work I've been doing for the past 10 years has been negotiating with warlords um, who are leading armed groups uh, for the release of the children in their ranks, which are more commonly known as child soldiers, but also designing the programs for their rehabilitation um, within their communities, uh, the family tracing and reunification of these children who have been separated from their families, uh, and as well as work in uh, detention centers where some of these children are often being imprisoned for being child soldiers negotiating their release and rehabilitation and reintegration into their communities. Can you tell us a little bit about the experiences of these children, which I imagine would be very hard for those of us who have not been on the ground to even uh, understand or imagine? Of course, I think the best way to illustrate the experiences of uh, children who fight in armed groups would be to uh, maybe share a little anecdote with you of um, one of the children I've met in Central African Republic. Um, he was 13 years old at the time and he was wearing a mismatched military uniform with broken sunglasses and a red beret on his head. He had two watches on each of his wrists and he was holding an AK-47. And everything about him uh, belonged to the demeanor of an adult. He looked like he could be... Uh, the energy he gave with that was, was one of someone who's 45 years old, but he was only 13 years old. And when I asked him, um, after negotiating with his warlords to be able to have access to him, when I finally asked him if he would be willing to come with us, with the United Nations, and leave um, the armed group, he asked me, why should I do that? And I said, because you're a child. And he responded back to me, no, I'm not a child. Who said I'm a child? I said, well, uh, according to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, anyone, a boy or a girl under 18, is considered a child. And his response was to say, I'm a soldier. I'm a man. I'm not a child. And just because you come and tell me I'm a child doesn't mean that I'm one. And truly, I think 
to me at least, is the best way to kind of explain or describe the nuances when it comes to children fighting in armed groups, armed groups, sorry, or also just children who've been exposed to um, deep trauma, is that just because I perceive his experience as being one of a victim of a little child who's been kidnapped by a group, he actually owns his narrative in a much more different way, which uh, renders the work, therefore, even more complex and challenging because you end up also negotiating with the children for their own release. And so I, I want to turn to Ishmael Bea, your husband. Ishmael Bea, born in Sierra Leone, West Africa, is the New York Times best-selling author of A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier and Radiance of Tomorrow. His memoir has been published in over 40 languages. Time Magazine named his book as one of the top 10 nonfiction books of 2007. A UNICEF ambassador and advocate for children affected by war, Ishmael Bea is also a member of the Human Rights Watch Children's Advisory Committee. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, you and how you owned your own narrative and uh, got to the point where you were able to tell your own story. You know, I, I grew up in, in um, I was born and grew up in Sierra Leone in West Africa, and um, it was a fairly quiet country that most people did not know about until we had a civil war that disrupted everything, basically everything collapsed. And uh, so you went from being a boy like me who was running around and going to the river, um, would leave my house and come back in the evening, nobody would worry about me because he was that safe, uh, to now basically uh, running for your life every single day. But also, uh, it, it going back to what Priscilla said, the perception of what it meant to be a child had changed in the community because of how children were being sought after and recruited into the fighting. And so when you came into a town running as a child or with a group of children, actually people were afraid of you rather than welcoming you as they had been um, because of what the war had done to the, to the perception of what a child is. A child was now a soldier. A child would now destroy their community. And that changed. So I was dragged into that madness. Um, I unfortunately survived it. I'm sitting here. So the, um, but I, I, and then I, I wrote about it because I, I felt like there was certain human context that were missing in the way, uh, for example, journalists would come and interview people and their interest was to just glorify the, the madness, the violence, the war, rather than really uh, understand how do people find themselves in this situation, how do communities collapse, but also how do you rebuild yourself, which I think is a, is a more interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. But obviously uh, the, the, the people who came to speak were not interested in that kind of stuff. So my desire uh, to tell my own story, to own my own story came from that. I felt that nobody would un um, knew how to do it better than I did because at least for my part of the story, my small part of the story, um, and over the years as a writer, that's what I try to do. But also when I, I you know, I go uh, as a UN ambassador in this field to meet young people, that's what I try to give them, to have people understand that just because you've, you've grew up in violence doesn't mean that you don't know how to think about your life. Often that's the kind of natural impetus. People say, well, let's help this child. The child may actually know how to help themselves if you make them part of the solution. So 
part of me owning up my student writing was to really illustrate that. You know. So say more about the assumptions that people with good intentions might have that interferes with the individual, the child being able to find his or her, or her own way into being part of the solution. Um, how, how do you make that happen? Well, I think in the beginning, a lot of people did not know how to address children who are coming from this very uh, difficult traumatic situation where basically uh, there are certain cases where kids are born in war and that's all they know. Mm -hmm. um, there are cases where you, you know, by the time you, you start to form certain cognitive uh, things, you basically all you know is violence. You don't know how to make. But that being said also, um, to survive war as a child or to survive trauma as a child requires a certain set of intelligence. So people forget that part. So uh, I remember as a kid, uh, after coming from the war, we would be sitting there and people would talk about us, about how we were feeling. And uh, we would raise our hand while we were sitting right here. You know, you could actually ask us. <laughs> we actually could say something about how we're feeling. You know, so, but, it, but that was kind of like, oh, well, you don't really know how you're feeling. So we're going to prescribe a certain set of ways to to talk about you. They used to call us the lost generation, which somehow people decided that because you've been exposed to violence at a young age, you will no longer be able to function, mm -hmm. that you will no longer, you're just a time bomb waiting to explode and all of these things. And I realized I was probably one of the people in the room who understood what actually peace meant than anybody who was sitting there because I had, I knew the absence of it, mm -hmm. you know. And as Priscilla was mentioning, you know, like by the time you know, I was 16, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd lived a life of, you know, my layering of experiences of my thought process was older than anybody who's 45 who had never, you know. So when I looked at something, when I had a conversation, I had more going on, but nobody was willing to see that. They just saw the boy who was still traumatized, who may lash at you. And I would laugh because I would see what they're thinking because, you know, I was, you know. So this is a question for both of you because Priscilla, you've also worked in what gets called the rehabilitation process and you have this deep personal experience of what actually gets in the way of healing. So, so talk with us about um, what it takes to help children heal. No, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and interestingly enough, when I tell people um, people who have more than five minutes to listen when I tell them what I do, they usually just stop at, oh my God, you negotiate with warlords. This is so insane. I can't believe you do this. It's so dangerous. But truly, the really hard part is the rehabilitation process. Of course, negotiating with warlords to release child soldiers is not, is not an easy task. But going through the rehabilitation and hopefully the reintegration within their communities is a long, minutious, and very challenging um, process that involves not just the child, but also the family of the child, the community of the child, and also the state and the country and the population in how they will act actually accept the child back within their community. Um, uh, you know, as an illustration, in um, Nigeria, for instance, uh, a lot of the communities in the northeast of the country perceive children who have fought with armed groups as having bad blood. Mm. So it means because the child has spent time in the armed group, 
he's considered or she is considered as having bad blood. And um, that illustrates, you know, the challenge that you're facing. So here is the child now who is outside of the arm group and is about to start the rehabilitation process, whether it is in a center for the children who have spent the longest time with the arm group or who have fought for the arm group repeated, repeatedly, usually have that rehabilitation process in a center, which was my dear husband Ishmael's <laughs> case when he was much younger. Uh, you also have rehabilitation processes, and this is the most ideal situation that happened within the community. And that will usually be based on what was the degree of involvement of the child within the arm group. Did the child actually pick up weapons and shot? Or was the child a cook or a messenger or a porter? Because you have all sorts of different um, occupations that children have once they join an arm group. Not all of them fight. So based on that, the rehabilitation process changes and within the center-based rehabilitation process, children have therapists who are on site. Uh, they usually, we usually favor, I mean, the, the psychologists usually favor a group therapy where all the children sit together and share their stories. And there are also um, play therapy, arts therapy, and so forth. But we're also talking about cultures that not necessarily even consider therapy you know it's yeah. it's even for me coming from congo and iran living in france and in america um you know culturally at least based on my experience we never really sit and talk about how we feel mm. you know it's just it's just not really part of our culture to be like so how do you feel today so but how did that make you feel heal. <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's uh, it's not something that that's really part of the culture and it's it's but uh, so it's a case by case, truly. And then once the rehabilitation process is finished, then starts the reintegration process within the community, which is a whole other. Yeah. And I think in reality, it, it never goes that smoothly because Absolutely. the community may have been badly hurt. Absolutely. It may be hard to find family. And um, this is a lot of the experience that you described. I, I think we have a question from our audience and then we'll come back to you. Hi, Ishmael. I've read your book and it's incredible. I just have one question for you. What exactly happened? Was there anything in particular that inspired you to want to document everything you went through and, and share this with the world? Um, well, certainly, I, I believe that part of my desire to, to write my first book that was about my experiences in the war was really um, have wanting people to understand what violence does to the human spirit, mm -hmm. but also how the human spirit can recover when given the right care, help and support, like what is possible to undo all of that. Um, and the lessons you can learn by that undoing. With telling this story, there was power in teaching people, in bringing people into a world and, and making them a little bit more empathetic. I, I'm not sure if they would understand the world completely, but just to try to walk in that shoes a little bit. Well, I, I mean, it, it's one of the most remarkable books I've ever read, and you really do accomplish bringing the reader to your experience, which is unimaginable for anybody who hasn't lived through it. And I'm not sure anybody can ever really understand without living through it. I wanted to ask you about the process of remembering, because you write in the book from a 12-year-old's perspective. Well, I, I come, you know, you, you're right. I come from uh, 
with the context of the war of Sierra Leone and other things, is also a place that has a strong oral tradition of storytelling. Mm. So I come from that experience, that tradition. Mm. And the belief in that tradition, which I think I hold dearly, is that stories are medicine. Um, uh, when I was a boy, uh, my grandmother was one of the storytellers in, in the village. And she would always remind me that, you know, stories like medicine that you pour into young people so that it can strengthen them. Because life is always going to try to break you one way or the other, whether you like it or not, there's always some kind of despair. But with stories, it will strengthen you so that not to resist, but to know how to sway with what happens with life, right? Mm -hmm. So I grew up believing that very strongly and knowing that that's true and that actually saved my life as well, coming out of this war. I have to say, when you talk about your grandmother and there's a smile on your face, you bring back my grandmother and her stories. <laughs> I think we have another question from our audience, so let's find out what they want to learn from both of you. This question is for Priscilla. Um, how do you go from one extreme to another when it comes to parenting from a parent from third world countries that are trying to keep their child alive in war zones and disease and just keep food in their mouth and then having to come back to America and then you have parents who have the smallest problems in comparison, but yet they're everyday problems that Americans have. It's a great question. So um, actually, I, it's the transitions from one world to another is always extremely hard for me, especially since I became a mom. When I, before that, it, I, I, I don't know, something about becoming a mom makes you way more vulnerable and weaker in my books or just maybe more in touch with some parts of your emotions. But you go to certain regions of some of the war-torn countries and you meet absolutely resilient uh, mothers who may have lost their homes and children and husband and, and still go on, you know, with, with a smile on their face and with, with the conviction that there will be a better tomorrow. And then I would come back to New York at the time and I would have a really dear friend of mine, I still remember like it was tomorrow, uh, calling me in the middle of the night, coming really early at my house, completely crying and me asking her, what happened? Are you okay? What's happening with your family? Are you just because her boyfriend had broken up with her? And I remember yelling at her because it seemed, it felt at that time to me so small. You know, when I, I read, when I, at the very beginning, of Ishmael's book, A Long Way Gone. Not very far into it, I immediately concluded, whatever problems I have, they're really nothing, and I just need to get over <laughs> Well, <laughs> and, and it's, But it was a huge gift. Yeah. It was this gift of perspective, and it will, it will stay with me. Um, but, but this is about your... Um, no, absolutely, but I also, I think, I think there is a lot of truth in this, and that's definitely where I was coming from. I shouldn't have yelled at my friend, but that's where it was maybe, coming from. Maybe it was from. a gift to her. But at the same, it, she, that's, that was her reaction. That's mm. why she's still a very dear friend of mine. <laughs> but the, I think it's also, I also learned that, you know, everybody's reality is valid. So that, that um, raises another question, which is for your children, who, like many children in the United States, who have parents who have come from other places with other experiences that are further away for the children, um, what, what would you like your children to know and what have you told them? What do you plan to tell them about 
um, your lives before you came here and where, in a sense, they come from? Um, one of the things that I think we really wanted to make sure remained was who we are, that that will remain part of our family uh, of bringing that. Yeah. So though we're living here, we want to make sure that they are aware of the rest of the world. Mm. They're aware of things, they're aware of how privileged they are, but also mm. how they can use that privilege to engage in the world more. I think that's what we're it's doing. A, but I have to say it's extremely challenging yeah, because it's, um, you know, I come to learn that the way you raise your children is not just dependent on you. It's also the school they go to, the community they're part of, the friends they make. And so we have twins who are two and a half years old and we have a five-year-old. For the twins, they're still quite small. So their friends, you know, they don't really share conversations per se. But our five-year-old has formed friendships here uh, in Santa Monica. And... Um, it's uh, interesting sometimes the conversations that come up and, you know, the thoughts that she brings home that sometimes are in such contradiction with the way we would have preferred the conversation to go. I, um, I guess my last question um, for both of you is um, uh, what can all of us do um, in whatever small ways we can to um, support the work that you do to make this world a place where no child has to endure what you endured or what the children who you continue to um, protect and support are going through? What, what can we all do? I, I think, um, you know, it's something I think about often. And of course, we could say you can donate, you can go and do something, but truly, usually, those are quite superficial, you know, um, don't really have an impact kind of action. I think the best way to, to quote unquote help is not to ignore those realities. It's to be informed, um, not to shelter your children from those realities. Of course, there is age appropriate, um, uh, but not to ignore it and, and expose your children to these realities. Take them to places that you're afraid of going. I'm not saying go to a war zone, of course not, I wouldn't say that, but go to, go to some of these beautiful African countries, um, go on a safari with your child, um, take them to Petra in Jordan, um, you know, get out of your comfort zone, um, burst the bubble a little and take your child with you and let them see, you know, all the beautiful things that the world has to offer so that they can then be more aware of the different realities. And so that in fine, the worlds that right now are ignoring each other no longer ignore each other. So I think it's more what the children can do and the children of their children can do, but the parents can just make sure that their children um, are exposed to different realities and different truths, not just their own. I think that's the best way to help, actually. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, in addition to that, I think one of the things that I've learned uh, as a writer, uh, writing and people reading my work and going to engage with them um, and having children, and it's that um, ultimately we all mean well. We may not know how to communicate it. Mm. Um, maybe our desire to ignore certain things is actually comes from the fact that we don't, f we feel overwhelmed. We feel like if we know about it, it's going to destroy our own reality. Mm. But what I've come to believe is that when we allow ourselves to be undone, actually, 
we strengthen our own value system more when we allow them to be challenged. If I believe in something, I never allow anybody to challenge it, where that belief is not really rooted in anything. But if I allow somebody to shatter it a little bit, then all of a sudden it changes who I am, you know, and strengthen. Then I know why I really believe in these values. It's supposed to just hold an end to them because that's what everybody else has said, mm -hmm. that you should hold on to them. And I think it so comes that, also through <laughs> things like at, at, this, at our children's school, for instance, you know, um, it's, it's sometimes as simple as picking a book that you wouldn't have picked. Mm. You know, you're, you're accustomed to read those, you know, story time book to our kids. And we're all really used to take books that people look like us on the cover. The stories speak to us. And then we read that to our children, which is great. But how about picking a book where, you know, the characters don't look like you and they're dressed differently and they eat different food. Oh, my God, they eat with their hands. And then reading that book to your child or instead of listening to your favorite Lady Gaga song, maybe you put some, I don't know, um, Asian music and just, you know, the idea truly about being connecting people and you know connecting those realities so that it becomes a universal responsibility not letting these kind of things happen in the world well this is sorry no i was going to say and the thing is it does work I mean, people always feel that uh, it's not going to do anything for them for example when i was writing my first book there was this fear that nobody's going to read it it's a book about a kid in war this is heavy you were wrong about that <laughs> exactly they were wrong about it the publishers were wrong about it. i came out because people crave things they just don't know how to lip mm. and i think this conversation is my, my hope for adults raising their children is that we should try to lip you know and, and leap and or as uh, vernica would put it like try to jump off the cliff sometimes and try to sew our wings as we fall down Take and, that leap you know, and, yeah, and see what lines. happens yeah yeah and see what happens and because we are already if we if you're in the santa monica you're you're in a bubble whether yeah. you like it or not yeah. you are so you know if you bubble. jump you can always come back to <laughs> yeah. the bubble if you don't land where you need <laughs> yeah. and you have that safety well, net you know well, so why not jump you know yeah well <laughs> i have to tell you about 20 pages into your book i i shut it and i said i can't do this i can't read this book this is too painful and then I thought, if this person could have lived through this as a 12-year-old, the least I could do is push myself to read the book. And I did. I read the whole thing. So um, I want to thank you for both of you for helping all of us um, dare to take that leap and spread our wings. It's really such a privilege and an honor to be with both of you and learn from both of you. Thank you so much for joining us for this Conversation for Change. 